Welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number 440, and we're speaking with the Arizona Department of Fish and Game. If you caught last week in the full episode, we spoke with Wyoming, and we're doing this series where we're speaking with as many of the western states as possible, or at least the western states that provide a lot of hunting opportunity to both residents and non-residents. So there's certain states we won't talk to, such as Oh, Washington, because they don't do a lot of non-resident hunting opportunity. But a state like Wyoming, Arizona, New Mexico, Idaho, etc., we're going to speak with each of those states. And the whole goal with these episodes are to talk about the tag application process in general, but also answer your direct listener questions. So after we talk in today's episode about Arizona's point system and their draw process and really understand how that process really works, because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about that. We get into some of your questions about the status of the deer herd and a lot of other questions and topics that came up that you guys submitted. So thank you to Kali and Jim, our guests on this episode, as well as the department in general for joining us for this conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I know that you will, too. If you have any questions for us for a future episode on any topic or any topic suggestion that you have, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. It would be great to hear from you. But let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Kali and Jim from the Arizona Department of Fish and Game. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Kali and Jim. I'm excited to have you guys. Wanted to thank you for taking the time to do this, being willing to do this. Um, it's really good to have an opportunity to speak with folks direct from the state today with you folks from Arizona. So thank you for doing it. Let's go ahead and just start with a quick introduction and background. Uh, feel free to share personally if, if you want about like your hunting or background before the department and then uh, as much as little as you want there. And then obviously what your role is within the department would be great if we can start with you, Callie. Sure. Um, yeah. So my name is Callie Cavalcant. I, within the Arizona Game and Fish Department, I'm the big game management program supervisor. Um, I've worked for the department for, I'm going on nine years now. Um, my background, I started with a, several internships with the department, bounced around a little bit. And then my first full-time position was as the wildlife health biologist, where I my primary role was management of the CWD monitoring program in Arizona. Um, from there, I jumped to our game data manager position within big game management. And that position, anything that had to do with data related to big game and sometimes small game management, um, I had my fingers in. Um, so that was a, a great position to really learn um, how how everything works in the background and working with the folks who were making the decisions on management for big game. Um, and so from there, I have recently, with so within the last year, have been in my current role. Um, history, as far as hunting, I, I really didn't grow up hunting. My dad um, did quite a bit of bird hunting when I was growing up and I would join him, but um, I never, I never carried a gun or harvested anything. Um, my, my dive into hunting really came when I met my now husband 
um, Andrew, and he, in college, he would disappear for long periods of time <laughs> uh, to go hunting, um, mainly archery hunting. And, you know, it, it was a desire to see, you know, where he was going, what he was passionate about and getting to know this, this activity, this sport that um, was, was not something that I had had experience in. And so I started joining him on his hunts and really got into it for the food. Um, having, having meat in the freezer was, was a super reward. That was, that was great. Um, and then from there, it's, it's just kind of snowballed. And now most of our vacations are planned around hunting. <laughs> um, we love doing it. Um, we, we spend a lot of time getting outdoors and enjoying wildlife, hunting, hiking, backpacking. And yeah, I, it's, it's become a huge part of my life and yeah, it's been great. Yeah. What Kelly's not telling you is that she harvested a bison, a really, really nice desert mule deer buck this year and, and has arrowed a cow's white tail, which is no small feat. So she's pretty accomplished. Yeah. Jim is Jim is my best hype man. He's great. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a good year. <laughs> yeah, I've had a good year. Yeah, so I've been with the Arizona Game and Fish Department 32 years today, I just noticed looking at the calendar. Oh, wow. Uh, so my first uh, 23 years was as a regional biologist in southeastern Arizona out of the Tucson Regional Office. And my job at that time was all of what we're going to be talking about is coordinating the helicopter surveys, getting all of the data in from the local biologists, putting that into a hunt recommendation, running the hunt recommendation process for the region through the Phoenix office. Um, for the last eight years, however, I've, I've moved to a different position that's more of a kind of a science advisor position for the administration. It's called wildlife science coordinator. And it's just my, my job to provide um, science support for the decisions we make and the policies we make to make sure we're on, on good, solid scientific um, ground, a good good foundation. I have for the last, I don't know, over 15 years chaired a Western Mule Deer Working Group that's sponsored by the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. That's 24 Western um, states and province wildlife agencies in Western North America. And so we deal with mule deer issues throughout the West and, and also been at the forefront of uh, our agency's Mexican wolf recovery for the last 12 or 13 years or so. So I'm wherever, wherever a good scientific foundation is needed, I've got the ability to, to spend the time to kind of take a deep dive into the science and make sure we're on, on solid ground. Um, I really didn't grow up hunting either. We moved from a, a big city suburb of Chicago to a small town in Southern Wisconsin when I was in eighth grade. And I couldn't believe that my classmates in eighth grade were able to walk around the woods with a, a real live shotgun. That was just astounding to me. And so I started accompanying them, started getting interested in hunting in the outdoors and, and started hunting and realized that you could, there was actually careers where you could, you could work on kind of hunting related stuff and wildlife conservation. I, so I went to University of Wisconsin Stevens Point and then on um, for a, a master's degree and, and been hunting ever since. And, and of course been in the wildlife field year alone for, for 32 years. Probably, I think this year was the highlight of my hunting uh, career. I, I had a desert mule deer hunt south of Tucson with my dad who turned 90 in June and three of my four sons who um, were around, one's in Kentucky and wasn't able to make it, but all of us were able to go on a, a mule deer hunt together. 
And uh, at one point, we were glassing on top of a hill, and my dad motioned me over, or called me over to where he was sitting behind a tripod, pointed out two bucks and a doe on the next hill, and we got him set up on a bipod and successfully shot um, 330-yard shot. He harvested a, a mule deer buck. So that's pretty exciting to, to witness his first buck uh, taken in his 90s. That is so cool. It's so awesome. Well, that is awesome. Thank you guys for sharing that. It, uh, I could throw out the entire agenda of questions that I had for today and just ask you guys follow-up questions just from the introduction, but uh, I will not do that, but I also want to. <laughs> One thing you said, uh, Jim, when you were talking about Kali's Harvest was cow's whitetail, the age-old debate, coos deer, cow's deer, etc. I know this from a non-resident perspective, but I don't know that I'm super familiar. How evenly split or not is that pronunciation within Arizona residents? Yes, I um, I wrote an article for our Arizona Wildlife News magazine that, that took a deep dive into Elliot Cowes, the old army surgeon and, and naturalist that the, the deer is named after. And the, you know, People talk about the debate about how the name should be pronounced, but Elliot himself um, really dropped the mic and solved the that debate in the 1860s. He published uh, he was a birder really. He really liked birds more than anything else, and he published a checklist of of birds of North America. And there's a footnote in there where he explains there's another bird that carries his name too, um, has a subspecies like our whitetail, which is Odicolis virginianus cowsii, named after him. There's another bird that's Cowsii named after him. And he explains in the footnote that the name Cows is named after Elliot Cows himself and explains that it's pronounced C-O-W-Z. Mm. So that comes right from Elliot Cows himself. The name is, you know, the, the deer is named after him. So there really isn't any debate um, how it should be pronounced, but you're not going to convince the 95% of the people that say Coos to, to change how they pronounce it. Well, that data is a valid point to convert me because I say coos just like out of habit and default and it's what I hear most but uh, maybe I'll start honoring him and pronouncing it cows <laughs> it, it becomes painful when people on the podcast try to pronounce it correctly and they're not used to it yeah yeah all right well again I'm, I'm trying not to get into uh, other questions I want to ask and part of what we wanted to do today as we're doing in all this series when we're speaking with state agencies is to both answer some very direct listener submitted questions, uh, which we will get to, but also just to kind of recap um, hunting opportunity within the state and then that application process, which I know could be, you know, an hour plus conversation all about applications and seasons, et cetera, but did want to start there and, um, you know, begin with a 30,000 foot view. If you can, Callie, just for people who are new to the potential of hunting Arizona, just a brief, like, again, 30,000 foot view overview of application season and kind of like the timing of when to look at opportunities and apply. Okay. Yeah. Great question. And I will um, throw in a disclaimer that I am a very much I'm in the weeds with the data kind of person. So your 30,000 foot <laughs> view, I'll do my best. But 
um, I may go down a couple rabbit holes and you're going to have to pull me out. So no problem. <laughs> feel free to interrupt me at any time. I fish as well as hunt so I can really back in. Okay, cool. <laughs> um, so Arizona has three draw cycles and those are the spring draw our elk and pronghorn draw and our fall draw. Um, so I'll, I'll touch base on each of those, the species um, that you can apply for at those times and also what the application periods are for um, each of those draws. So we'll start with spring. So spring applications open mid-September and well, usually beginning of September and close during the first or second week of October. Um, and just as a disclaimer as well, these, these dates um, can change. And so this is a really general overview of season timing for these booklets. Um, so make sure if you're listening, pay attention to the regs. On the very front cover of each of the regs, um, we'll publish what the deadline for that draw is going to be. Um, so that's a really important date to keep track of. And it's right there on the cover of our regulations booklets. Um, but so the spring draw, we're looking at open through September and closing in early October. Um, those species are going to be spring turkey. And so that would be our Miriam's turkey and our Gould's turkey. Um, also a free, a couple um, additional uh, permits offered for Rio Grande turkeys. Um, that'll be spring javelina and spring bison for the that spring draw. Um, for elk and pronghorn, um, that's exactly what it's for, elk and pronghorn. That application opens in January and closes early February. For fall, that application opens April or May and then closes early June. And our species for the fall draw are going to be deer, bighorn sheep, fall turkey, fall javelina, and those are youth-specific seasons for javelina, fall bison, and sandhill crane. Um, there's been a recent change for sandhill crane where you can start accruing bonus points for, for that species. Um, so that's, uh, that's my 30,000-foot view of our, our season timings for each of our draws. Perfect. I didn't, I didn't no fishing involved. That was wonderful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we, with our audience, we have, you know, very seasoned, dedicated, experienced hunters and new hunters. I'm sure there's some folks listening who have, you know, 20 plus points in Arizona and some folks listening going, oh, I'd love to hunt Arizona. What does a point mean? Can you clarify, because uh, especially for newer hunters, it gets confusing. The point system in Arizona, is it a bonus point, preference point, et cetera? And then yeah. any of the, I know they're, again, go into some of the weeds, I guess, on anything that someone who wants to acquire points for Arizona needs to know in terms of like details year over year, for example, about maintaining points. I know there's some hunter education opportunities that change the points, et cetera. So um, yeah, a little bit more detailed, but also just a clarification of what is the point structure or system for Arizona specifically? Oh, for sure. Um, so there's a lot of really great pieces in, in that. So I'll start with Arizona's point system is a bonus point system. Um, and the we do have, however, pieces 
of a preference system in the way that our draw runs. However, um, we do have bonus points and the way that hunters can accrue bonus points is to either apply for a species when the draw for that species is open and be unsuccessful in drawing a permit, you'll automatically receive a bonus point. Um, and you can also just purchase a bonus point when that species is open and available to application. So right now we are heading into our elk and pronghorn draw. And so if you're interested in, in purchasing a bonus point for that species, either of those species, that's the time to do it is right now. Um, you can also apply for hunts for either of those species. And if you're unsuccessful, you'll receive a bonus point. Um, bonus points can be accrued for any species that offer draw permit tags. Um, I mentioned earlier that Sandhill Crane is a recent addition to that. Um, and we also, you mentioned the hunter education and the loyalty bonus points. So those are two permanent bonus points that hunters can earn and then maintain for Arizona. Um, and so first is our hunter education bonus point. Um, if you take an Arizona Game and Fish approved hunter education course, you can receive a permanent hunter education point for all species. And there's a couple different avenues you can take there. Um, you can take an in-person course or you can pay for the online course. Um, I don't know that cost of those courses right off the top of my head, but there is a difference in price between the resident versus non-resident. But um, if, if hunting in Arizona is something that you're interested in, um, in the future, I would highly recommend um, investing in partaking in one of those courses because that extra point really does and can make a difference. Um, the other is a loyalty point. And what that point is, is when you apply for a species five years in a row, so it has to be consecutive draws, you'll earn the loyalty bonus point for that specific species. Um, the one caveat with that point is the first year that you forget to apply for that species, you'll lose it and then you have to apply for another five consecutive years. Um, but that's a way that you can maintain two permanent points for species in Arizona all year round um, and, you know, on a, on a year to year basis. And so those are definitely worth it and can definitely um, affect your odds in the drawing. Uh, would it help to go into like how our draw works and the different passes of the draw? It would. Yeah. I was actually going to just follow up about that. So perfect. Okay, great. So we've got three passes in our draw and those are the bonus pass, the one, two pass and our three, four, five pass. Um, so this is where you might have to pull me out of the weeds a little bit, but I'll do my best to, to streamline this as much as possible. Um, so our bonus pass is where Arizona's draw starts to resemble a little bit of that preference point system. So in the bonus pass, 20% of the permits for each hunt number are allocated to the folks who apply with the greatest number of bonus points. Um, and I, I'll, I'll do another little disclaimer in here. Um, the rules for bighorn sheep and bison are a little bit different than all the other species. And so um, what I'm gonna cover for the draw right now is specific to all species except for bighorn sheep and bison. Um, and I can touch on those differences here at the end. Um, 
So in the bonus pass, let's say that we've got a hunt, a deer hunt with 100 permits. 20% of those permits are eligible in the bonus pass. So 20 permits will go to the hunters who apply with the greatest number of bonus points for that hunt. Let's say that um, 10 people with 10 bonus points apply. All 10 of those people will receive tags before they look at the folks with nine bonus points. And maybe there are 15 people in the nine bonus point category, only 10 of those people will receive tags. And so that's done for all hunt numbers until the 20 tags are issued. Then we go on to our one-two pass. And so this is our random pass of the draw. So this, I like to compare this pass to like a raffle. Um, for every bonus point that you have, plus one, because folks with zero bonus points also have to have a chance as well. Those, for every bonus point you have, is like having your name in the hat or like an extra raffle ticket in the bucket an additional time. And so everyone has a chance of getting drawn in the random pass for the remaining 80% of the permits. But you, the folks with more bonus points have slightly better odds, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so that pass only considers your first and second choice. It does not look at your third, fourth, and fifth choice. So let's say a hunter, their their application is pulled. The draw will immediately look at their first choice. And if there are permits available, they'll get that hunt. If it's not, the draw will immediately look at their second choice hunt. And if there are permits available for that hunt, they'll draw their second choice hunt. If there are not permits available for either of those choices, the application gets thrown back into the hat to be considered during the three, four, five pass of the draw, where it looks at your third, fourth, and fifth choices. Um, and so it does this until it's considered all applications and in the three, four, five pass, any hunts that have remaining permits, it'll go through all of the applications and um, issue permits for the third, fourth, and fifth choice hunts until all applications have again have been considered and any remaining tags would then go to first come, first serve. So for bison and bighorn sheep, it's slightly different. Instead of the bonus pass issuing 20% of each hunt number, it's 20% of the total permits offered for the species as a whole. So if there are 100 available permits for bighorn sheep hunts, 10 of the permits, regardless of hunt number, can go in the bonus pass. And so um, we do have some hunts that let's say that there are two permits available for a bighorn sheep hunt, it's possible that both of those permits could be issued in the bonus pass um, and not be available for the random draw. And so that's true for bighorn sheep and bison. That's helpful. This, um, well, let's go here next. I'm not even sure how, what these numbers are for Arizona as a whole. And again, I know that this could get totally different on different species, et cetera, but primarily focusing on things like elk, deer, pronghorn, et cetera. Is there species-wide set non-resident tag allocations, like percentage of totals oh, per yeah, species, or is it more uh, like unit region specific per species? Can you just kind of talk about essentially the allocation of non-resident tags? Yeah, 
For sure. Great question. So um, again, the rules for bighorn sheep and bison are a little different. So I'll focus on the other species first and then um, jump into how it differs a little bit for those other species. Um, for the most part, non-residents are limited to 10% of the available permits for hunt numbers. Um, and there are some exceptions there like javelina. Um, there is no 10% non-resident cap. Um, however, for the most part, it's this 10% non-resident cap. So in that example that I was using of a 100 permit hunt for deer, um, 10 of those permits would be available for non-residents. For that same hunt, half of those permits, so five of them, can be issued in the bonus pass. So the non-residents who apply with the greatest number of bonus points um, would be eligible for five of those permits in the in the bonus pass of the draw. Then whatever permits are not issued are then eligible in the the random pass of the draw. But there would be five permits that would for sure be available to non-residents in the random pass. And I, it's also important to note that it's up to ten percent. So those ten permits for that hunt are not guaranteed to go to non-residents. That's just what they're limited to. So there are certainly hunts that meet the 10% non-resident cap from year to year. There are many hunts that never reach the non-resident cap. Um, and so that's an important thing to note is just that those aren't 10, 10% isn't guaranteed to non-residents. That's just the limit of what they can receive. So for bison and bighorn sheep, it's again that 10% of the total permits are available to non-residents and half of those are eligible in the bonus pass of the draw. Another thing of note is that for bighorn sheep and bison, no more than 2 or 50% of a hunt number can go to non-residents. So if we have a hunt number for bighorn sheep that offers two permits, only one of those can go to a non-resident. If there are four permits available for a hunt number, no more than two can go to non-residents. Um, if there's a hunt number with five, no more than two, um, because three would exceed that 50% point um, mm -hmm. to go to non-residents. Um, another thing that's worth noting for non-residents and when you're applying in Arizona, some things to think about are the number of permits that are available for a hunt um, may also dictate outside of that 10% what's available to non-residents. Um, for example, if there's a single permit available, which is quite common with our bighorn sheep hunts, that single permit cannot go to a non-resident. It's only available to resident hunters. And so um, as a non-resident, if you're applying for any hunts with single permits, um, you're doing yourself a little bit of a disservice because you would never receive that tag. And so you would be um, better off applying for hunts that have more than one permit. So you'd be eligible to potentially draw a tag. Another point would be um, any hunts that have greater than one but less than 10 permits, so we're looking at hunts bet with between two and 10 permits, at least one of those permits could be available to non-residents. Um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll hold off there. For <laughs> no, <laughs> I've gotten it's it's a little bit, haven't I? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's helpful information. It's very detailed. There's a lot of 
uh, details to it, but you communicated it clearly. And uh, I, I would imagine myself, even as I'm interested in looking at my application strategy, like rewinding and going back, but it is very clear. There's just so many details. All that said to say, for people who are overwhelmed by that, what are there over-the-counter non-resident opportunities for big game species in Arizona? There are, yes. And so there have been some recent changes to at least one of our over-the-counter seasons, and that's over-the-counter archery deer. Um, there, There is now a 10% non-resident cap on uh, over-the-counter archery deer seasons, um, which is a relatively new change. It's been the last two years. And so those permits are available for sale um, the first week of November for the following calendar year. So it does require um, a little bit of pre-planning and um, taking some time to go on our website and purchase those permits um, for the next calendar year. We also have over-the-counter elk seasons. We have over-the-counter bear seasons, mountain lion, archery turkey, um, some over-the-counter javelina seasons. Um, those do not have non-resident caps and are available for purchase uh, 365 days a year. Um, there are seasons associated with each of those um, opportunities. And so it, it would be important to refer to our regulation booklets to see when those tags are valid in certain areas and what dates of the year you can use them. Um, but you could come here and purchase those um, tags anytime as a non-resident. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, are there any, this is open-ended, but call it common questions or misconceptions that exist specifically around applications and drawing that you would like to kind of speak to or maybe clarify? Oh, sure. Um, I guess just maybe as a little bit of a strategy piece, um, when I when I talk to folks about their their applications for the big game draw, um, I one of my my big recommendations to folks is so to my hunters who have been accumulating bonus points for the last couple years. And let's say, let's use elk as an example. Maybe you're getting in that like five to seven bonus point range for elk. Um, I would really encourage those hunters to be really mindful about what they're putting down for their first and second choice. Because there are scenarios where you could draw your second choice hunt without ever being considered for your first choice hunt when you start getting into those max bonus point pools for the hunts that you're putting as your first and second choice. And so I'll explain that a little bit um, in more detail here. So an example of that would be, let's say that we have a hunter that has um, seven or eight bonus points and their first choice hunt, their dream hunt um, is an early general bull season. And so many of those hunts take 20, around 20 points um, to be competitive for in the bonus point pass of the draw. And so again, um, that bonus point pass is the 20% of the permits are reserved for the folks with the greatest number of bonus points that applied for those hunts. And so our, our hunter with seven or eight points is not competitive for that hunt in the bonus point pass. However, if their second choice hunt is, let's say, an early archery bowl season, that the max bonus point pool for those hunts are typically 
seven or eight bonus points, they could draw that tag in the bonus pass of the draw because they're a max bonus point holder, even though they put it as their second choice. And so in those scenarios, they would never be considered for their first choice hunt. And so um, when you're thinking about what hunts you're interested in and what you're what you'd love to get drawn for, it's it's important when you start accumulating those points to kind of be strategic about what you're putting in as your first and second choice. Um, because if, if your number one goal and your dream hunt is that first choice opportunity, you may want to put in for a second choice hunt that has, that requires a similar number of max bonus points to be considered in the bonus pass so that you have an opportunity in the random pass of the draw of potentially drawing either one of those tags. I don't think that's a misconception, but a little tidbit for strategy for folks who are applying. Yeah, no, helpful for sure. All right, well, I'm, I'm sure we could keep talking applications and, and all that, but that was a very helpful overview as well as some some good details to consider. I did want to obviously make sure we have some time for listener questions. We had a lot of questions um, come through about deer and deer hunting in Arizona. And um, I'm condensing some of those into like common questions or themes. But uh, one of the big ones was essentially, what has the data shown after going to a quota hunt for archery deer? And I guess to precede that, can you talk about the change of going to a quota hunt for archery deer for context? Sure. So, yeah, over the the last two years, we've moved to this harvest limit approach and with subsequent mandatory harvest reporting for our over-the-counter archery deer seasons. And so what precipitated that change is we recently, in 2022, underwent our um, five-year hunt guidelines review. And so the hunt guidelines cover the next five years is almost like a recipe book for how we recommend hunting seasons, um, permits, um, what different parameters we look at within a population to determine the number of permits or seasons that can or should be offered for a, um, a species. And so in part of that process, there were concerns expressed about the increasing number of over-the-counter archery deer hunters and the increased level of harvest associated with that. And so the department did a really deep dive into that season and considered lots of different options for those archery deer seasons. Um, Where our heavy public input requested this um, new archery harvest limit approach. And so um, harvest limits are set by unit and species. And those harvest limits are the way that they work is that we now require hunters to report their harvested deer during the season within 48 hours. And so as those harvest reports come in, it counts down off of the harvest limit. And once a harvest limit is met, that unit closes to archery deer hunting for the remainder of whatever seasons may have been available for the remainder of the year. So we have these three primary seasons for over-the-counter archery deer. It's August, September, and then it closes during the general um, hunts, reopens in for the month of December. It's usually the second 
week of December, that Friday through the 31st, and then the whole month of January. And so, for example, if a harvest limit for a unit was 40 deer, and those 40 deer were harvested during the August-September season, that unit would close to hunting for the remainder of the year, and so it would not reopen during the December or January seasons. And so that's, that's where we ended up with the over-the-counter archery deer seasons. We've had those for two years now, and now that we have this two years of data, we can really start digging into what kinds of trends exist with this new season. Um, we can look at hunter effort, um, you know, what kind of, what level of harvest is occurring. Um, and we haven't, we haven't really dove really deeply into that data yet. Um, just because that, you know, they're, it's working, uh, units are closing as folks are harvesting. And now that we have two years of data and we can really evaluate a trend in the data, um, we're excited to look and see and see what's going on um, and use that to inform our hunt recommendations moving forward. Um, I think it's been really successful. Um, so far, we, gosh, I could speak to the how harvest limits have been met over the last couple of years. So in, in general, um, for 2022-2023 and then the 2023-2024 seasons, we've offered approximately 75 different seasons or harvest limits throughout the state. And during the first year, um, right about half of those closed. Um, so half never met the harvest limit and were available to hunting for all the available seasons. Um, eight of those closed in the August-September season, nine in December um, but the majority closed in January. And so the majority of those seasons were available for hunters for the majority of the over-the-counter archery deer seasons. Um, for this season to date, uh, 31 have closed. So under half, 12 of those closed during August, September, three in December, and then up to this point, 16 have closed in January. And we still have the majority of the month left to go. I may have missed this, but if a harvest limit is reached during a season, does it close that current season or it only closes any following seasons? Great question. It would close for the remainder of that season as well. So harvest limits, as they're met, will close a unit on a Wednesday evening after sundown. And so as hunters are out in the field, they should be checking our harvest limit page at least Thursday morning just to see what units are still open. Jim, I'm curious to get your, you know, uh, not opinion, perspective on this in particular, but also things like the role of data, both in terms of observation in the population, but also the role of hunt reporting. Um, to me, and this <laughs> sounds so much easier because I'm an armchair quarterback behind a microphone and I'm not running efficient game agency, I, I think it would be so helpful for more states, seasons, et cetera, to require, I'm just, I'm surprised there's not more mandatory hunt reporting, even for hunts where there's not a hard quota such as this. Um, so again, I'd just love to have you speak to this topic in particular, these deer quotas 
And then also kind of more broadly, the role of hunt data in addition to observed population data of species. I know that's throwing a lot at you. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, I think to start out with the, the more broader view that that hunters have always provided management relevant data and, and it's really important the kind of information that we can get from hunting we manage deer populations with two big um two big categories of data and one is survey data where we actually get in a helicopter get behind binoculars and we survey buck to doe ratios pond to doe ratios the number of deer per hour as an index to deer abundance uh, sometimes we calculate deer per square mile as an index to annual changes in in density so that's the survey half of it and that's more direct of the population the other half of it that's equally important that all agencies use is the harvest information and that has to come from from information from hunters and from the harvest itself so this is all part of what we call an adaptive management process where you survey the deer population you look at ratios you look at densities you look at the age structure maybe of the population and then you prescribe a hunt and you harvest a certain number of bucks out of the population. Then we go in after the hunt, and we we that's when we monitor that population annually, and we see what kind of effect did that management have. And then for the next year, we make adjustments. We adapt to what we find in in the survey. And we also, as part of that, is is the hunt questionnaire information, where we ask hunters were they successful, what kind of deer did they harvest, uh, how many days did they spend, and from that we can get in each game management unit. The number of deer an estimate of the number of deer harvested in that unit we can get the number of days spent per harvest we can get what percent of the hunters are successful and and all of that information then can be looked at as trends and we can see how things are tracking whether it's getting harder and harder to get a deer we also with the help of the public established management guidelines we want to keep buck to doe ratios fond to doe ratios and, and hunt success within a certain guideline range and when those numbers drop below that range, we know it's an indication we need to back off, reduce the number of permits. When we're tracking with high buck to doe ratios, high hunt success, it's an indication that there's a lot of bucks out there available and we can we can increase permits. So hunter participation in that helping us gather management information is is um, is absolutely critical in, in part of that adaptive management process. And so that naturally comes to the discussion and we've had discussions for a long time not just within our agency but among other wildlife agencies in um, especially in the mule deer working group that i chair we talk sometimes about mandatory reporting and sometimes it's not necessary intuitively you'd think no we want all of that information but um, all of that information sometimes comes with a lot of baggage if you're going to require people to report their harvest statewide for all hunts that means that you need some kind of um, law enforcement arm or you need some kind of punitive punishment for people that don't do that and and that might mean sitting out a year might be um, paying more money so now you're punishing hunters because they didn't report the data which is fine if you absolutely need that but we when when if we track it Kelly knows the latest percentage but um 40 probably around 40 percent of the hunters responding to hunt questionnaires that's plenty of responses to get an idea and to extrapolate to what the the rest of the hunters, um, what kind of success they had and whether they're harvesting. You know, we predict presidential elections on a few percentage points using statistics and our department and other departments use the same kind of st statistics to look at the sample we have of the harvest information and what that means for extrapolating for 
for all of the hunters. And so it's a balance between um, do you have enough information to manage uh, appropriately and, and within a statistical margin of error you're comfortable with, or do you need to get the hammer out rather than the carrot and and force people to mandatory report and and then penalize the people that don't? So it, it, it's a balance as an agency. Do you really need to go there is the basic question, or do you have good enough data to manage those populations? Yeah, that's helpful. Thank you. Can you talk a bit more, Jim, about the observation? So, I mean, you mentioned aerial, like a helicopter versus quite literally time behind the glass. I, you know, I've obviously have heard of agencies doing flyovers, doing counts, et cetera. I've never really had a chance to discuss that in any detail. And I know it's going to vary state to state, species to species, et cetera. But for Arizona, for something like deer, feel free to pick another species. Can you kind of talk about the big picture? What does a year look like? Are there certain times of the year, multiple times of the year, where you guys were flying? How many, you know, I don't know if we want to call it man hours or maybe spent with boots on the ground, eyes behind glass, that type of thing. I'd just love to hear more details about that portion of data collection. Yeah, we collect the the actual direct survey data that I talked about from deer populations after the hunts. That's an important component of it because we we don't want to go surveying before the hunts and then have hunters take a take take the harvest and then not have a good view of, of what happened. So it's always after the hunt, but it's not always it's not only because we want to measure the deer population parameters after the hunting season. That's important, but it's also biologically that time of year when uh, deer are rutting. So it's after the hunts, after November, and, and we go in there in January, mostly in January is when most of the day is collected. And that's also um, during the rut for really both of our, our deer species. And that's important because male and female deer don't spend the whole year together all the time, but during the breeding season, they are together and they're found in close proximity. And so if you do a survey for and measure buck to doe ratios in July, you're going to get a much different ratio as these the sexes are separate in different kinds of habitat for the most part than if you survey them during rut when they are all together. So biologically, it makes sense to survey during the rut or near the rut and after the, the deer season. So that's what we do. And really, we get most of our survey information from helicopter and from fixed wing um, uh, airplanes, small Cessnas, just because it's much more efficient. If you just look at the amount of money spent per deer observation, it's definitely more efficient to do that aerially, especially in our rugged country with with um, some areas without um, a lot of access. But we do, we still, the local wildlife managers, we have 80 some game management units in the state and local wildlife managers also go out and as you say, spend time um, behind glass and survey animals that way. That collects additional data sometimes that collects data where a, a hunter can go in, or I mean, a, a wildlife manager can go in and survey an area where we're not going to cover with the helicopter and get information from specific areas. It also is really useful for the local biologist to be out there on the hilltop glassing, looking at the plants, looking at grazing conditions, looking at drought conditions, um, and just being being out there. So there's value even in addition to the deer information that we get. Because when we do helicopter surveys, we, we can't survey the entire game management unit. That would take, in in our country, a complete coverage helicopter survey would take maybe four or five days in each game management unit. And 
that's just spending, just like we talked about, estimating harvest information with a sample of the hunters. It's the same thing with surveys where we estimate deer population parameters with a sample of each population because it just doesn't make any sense to, to try to survey the whole area. So we sample part of it and wildlife managers can go in there on the ground and sample other parts that we're not going to cover with the, the aerially. Do you have any additions, Jim, to that question on kind of what the data is showing in terms of the changes with this quota hunt? As Kali mentioned, it's a work yeah. in progress. It's been a couple of years, but uh, can you extrapolate any other trends? Or uh, I, I know we don't want to get in the game of making predictions, but <laughs> just to elaborate on any other points there. The difficulty, you can't make predictions when you have one data point, and that's right. really yeah. So we're coming up on being able to look at the second year of that. So it's really, you can't look at one data point and look at a trend because you only have a dot on a, on a graph. So, you know, unfortunately, we'll have to just get at least a second year. And then, as I talked about with our adaptive management, every additional year, we're continually um, evaluating that and, and talking about it. Can you expound on adaptive management? I mean, one thing is... Um... I think it's helpful for hunters, myself included, to learn about is the life cycle of making decisions. Um, you know, I, I know you guys mentioned earlier a five-year life cycle, things like that. But in terms of adaptive management, can you kind of extrapolate more about that, how decisions are made, the timing, um, essentially of response to things like data points, hunting pressure? I know that there's some other aspects to the adaptive management like uh, environmental factors of drought etc so I'd, I'd love to learn more about that yeah like the surveys that i mentioned in in january all that survey information comes together after mid-february and all the local biologists and that's what i did in the in the region but there's six regions in arizona and so each one has a regional biologist that pulls together that survey information at the end of February, early March, um, local wildlife managers make hunt recommendations in their game management units where they're pulling in the survey and the harvest information. And all that flows up to the, the Phoenix office to uh, a, an overall statewide hunt recommendation made up of all those regional recommendations. Then that goes into uh, a package. It goes through our administration, the executive staff, and, um, and then it gets presented as a department recommendation to the commission um, well ahead of the April commission meeting. And then at the April commission meeting, it's an opportunity. And there are a lot of opportunities for the public to take part in this process. They can really anytime throughout the year, you can send um, comments about hunt structures and, and changes you'd like to see to a, there's a stable email address that's uh, hunt, er, hunt, er, AZ hunt guidelines at azgfd.gov. So we, we continue to get input throughout the year as the hunt recommendation process cranks up. There's other opportunities for people to provide input. And it finally culminates in a, a, for deer and the fall species in a commission meeting in April where it's a public meeting so people can show up and talk to the, the five-member commission about changes that, that they would still like to see. And what's unique about the commission system, in uh, especially in Arizona, where the governor only appoints one commissioner per year and then after five years there's five members after five years the new appointment bumps the one that's been there five years off so the governor can't come in and sweep the commission and, and remove them all and put all new people in the, the commission and that that buffers only one a year buffers the the science of wildlife management from the politics 
somewhat. So we've got a great system where the public can come talk to the commission. The commission's job is not just to take the department's biological recommendation and implement it, but the commission's job is to weigh the biological information and weigh the public input and make sure that they're they're uh, satisfying their responsibilities as public trust managers to manage wildlife in the public trust for the for the public in the way the public wants to do it, but doing so in a way that um, stays true to the biological information and the the guidelines and um, well the hunt guidelines that the public has helped construct and in, in how these populations are going to be managed. And so once that April commission meeting the, the gavel is dropped on that, then it just translates those recommendations that were approved by the commission into the the uh, hunt uh, regulations that you see on the new stand at the, the local sporting goods store. So these to keep it in this context, and I'm sure it affects other things, but since we're talking about quoted deer, those quotas could change year over year based on that process you just described. Right. Yep. Absolutely. That that um, process at the end of the survey period, and also when we're surveying in January into the first couple of weeks of February, that's the time also when the the um, the post hunt questionnaire data is coming in and being summarized. And so we have all that information together at that time. And, and it's at that point where the local wildlife manager in each one of the game management units looks at all of the data, not only the survey and harvest data, but their personal experience out in the field. Also them talking to hunters during the hunt when they were out there patrolling in, in year round and, and considering all of the input they got even in the field. And that's where um, things about hunter crowding, things about discussing the age structure of the buck population or how people are doing, all of that big mass of, of information is in the wildlife manager's um, realm to make that local hunt recommendation for that individual unit. And that happens, that hunt recommendation happens, when I was a game specialist, it happened every year. Every year we would take annual data and and we, we were discussing whether permits need to go up or permits need to go down on an annual basis. And I believe Callie, I think, I know they do surveys every two years I'm not sure if they lock in hunt recommendations for permits um, every two years. Now, one thing is I, I spent 23 years, which felt like my whole career doing this. And then now I find myself eight years out of it and really starting to lose touch with a lot of the changes. Our department has done a lot of changes in game management. Yeah, no, I think I, I, think, I think you nailed that. Like we're still we're still doing um, we've got every other year surveys for deer uh, and elk. We've got every three year surveys for bighorn sheep, and then we do every year surveys for um, pronghorn and uh, quite a few of our turkey units as well. Wow, that's cool. I mean, it's uh, neat for me just casually as a hunter to hear like everything that goes into that, but that's a pretty um, short, and I mean this in a good way, like efficient decision process, right? Like you're going straight from a hunting season, this observational data, et cetera. And within really a couple months, piecing a lot of information together that then are submitted as recommendations. That's that's cool. Yeah, it's an absolute crunch time with all of that data coming together at the same time and recommendations due in time to, to vet it and, and get public input and get it to the commission and then get regulations out in time for the um, the draw process. There was a listener question um, submitted about um, 
antler point restrictions and and again i'm full ignorance here of how many units do or don't or none or half i have no idea so this isn't me asking this question but the question was posed of have antler restrictions been discussed for over-the-counter deer uh and this person felt like there was too many young deer being harvested so uh please please correct and elaborate my ignorance here yeah, sure. The, the antler point restrictions are, are a very um, common topic, even throughout the West. And, and we talk about it in the Mule Deer Working Group with those 24 Western agencies. You know, the topic comes up um, once in a while, but it's, I, I, I think we kind of know um, how useful antler point restrictions are in the West. One of the, the Mule Deer Working Group um, that I chair has produced these two-page fact sheets with information about topics like this that come up. We've been doing that for maybe 10 years. We have about 45 fact sheets on our website, and that's at uh, Mule Deer Working Group, all one word, muledeerworkinggroup.com. We have all these fact sheets, and this was one of the first ones we produced on antler point restrictions because it is something that comes up at public meetings and, and something that people frequently comment about. And, and it just is so intuitive. It makes so much sense that, hey, if you want a more mature buck age structure, you want some to allow some of those younger bucks to grow older and grow bigger in any particular management unit, just put some kind of restrictions so people can't shoot those younger deer and let them grow older. It just makes a lot of sense. But we've got decades of experience of people trying that. Um, it, the recommendations are are usually brought forward by hunters who just want to see more older deer out there. Um, unfortunately, almost every Western state has tried antler point restrictions and have quit using those. Um, and the reason for that is a twofold, probably mainly, and that is um, the most important thing is when you say three pointer better, well, the first couple of years, you're saving some of those younger deer until they get the three-point or better. But then it only takes a couple of years when every three-point on the landscape is getting taken off um, out of the field. Because you did have hunters out there, they'd take a spike home, they'd take a two-point home, and they'd be out of the field. Now you have everybody staying out in the field and searching for three-points or better because that's all that's legal. And so you'll have, you'll see more spikes, you'll see more two-points, but every three point gets whacked and removed from the field. And so in the end, you're not accomplishing what the intent was. And that was to have some more mature bucks um, out there. And they find that it doesn't increase the mature buck age structure. It temporarily will increase the buck to doe ratio, but that doesn't have lasting effects. And even long-term, you don't get an improvement in, um, in buck to doe ratios. And so it's just a uh, uh, a matter of a lot of agencies trying those. Some agencies still have those, but the agencies, um, except for a few exceptions, the agencies that have those handler point restrictions in place, um, are there are cases where hunters brought them to the commission. The commission was responsive and implemented handler point restrictions, but the data doesn't support handler point restrictions achieving what the the intent normally is, and that's just to have a more mature age structure. Another issue is you find, and agencies have found, that there's a lot of um, deer that don't make don't make the three-point. A lot of deer that are killed and then left in the field because they're not legal once, once the hunter walks up to them. And a lot of agencies have documented that kind of um, increase in illegal kill, which doesn't help if you're also trying to increase the, 
the age structure of the population. So they, uh, there's something that make a lot of sense, and that's why people are always talking about them. But when they're actually implemented, agencies have just found they don't accomplish what um, people what people recommend them for. I'll I'll loop, jump in real quick and loop back to our earlier discussion on like uh, evaluating trends, and so specific to. Um, those listener questions on the over-the-counter archery deer seasons and um, the age of harvested bucks, like that's that's a really great example of data that we, now that we have these two years and can establish these trends and really start um, deeply evaluating that data that we've collected from those seasons, that's, that's something we can take a look at and consider in our hunt recommendation process as well. Like what what hunter effort looks like, what kind of deer hunters are selecting for, um, how many days they're spending in the field, how that difference differs between units or between species. Um, and so that's that really um, touches base on like the type of data we can mine and investigate from those seasons now that we have multiple years of data to look at. This is probably opening up a can of worms, so I know this is going to be a complex issue, but I I would just love to have a brief, better understanding. Jim, if you were to take a region or unit or portion of the state and did have an objective to increase the number of mature deer, what are some of the things that could be implemented? Is it, you know, I, I would assume that obviously there's things like habitat, there's environmental factors that are outside of control. Um, but then is it just reducing harvest overall and letting all age class grow? I'm just, uh, would be curious. Yeah. With our system, it's a, it's a lottery, at least for the rifle, um, the general season, it's a lottery sale draw. So we control the harvest with the number of permits we, we give out. And the way you build a mature age structure is to back off on, on harvest, just fewer permits. And we do have a couple of units that we call alternative management uh, and that and that is the goal there is to have a higher buck to doe ratio, an older age structure, lower density of hunters um, for people who are willing to sit out a couple of years in order to have an opportunity to have that kind of hunt. And and that's an important point is that there's a trade off. If you, you can manage for maximum hunter, uh, hunter opportunity and let people like my dad and my three sons get out there and, and deer hunt. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, and it is a spectrum, it's not this or that, the other end of the spectrum is you can really clamp down, offer very limited permits, and allow that buck age structure to get old, really close buck to doe ratio, and, um, and have that kind of experience. And people, there's a, the Utah biologists I know joke that they, they did some human dimensions research with their hunters in Utah, and they asked them, Okay, so there is a trade-off here. We recognize you, there's, there's, you can manage for mature bucks or you can manage for a lot of bucks. Would, would you rather see a lot of bucks or would you rather see mature bucks? And they said the majority of the respondents confirmed that they wanted to see more mature bucks. And it doesn't work that way. It's, it's, it's really a, a, a trade-off and agencies have to have to make that conscious decision of what kind of management they're going to embark on. And I think most agencies have um, kind of settled into statewide management for um, the opportunity to go hunting. And then a few individual units where people can select the, um, those units if they want a more mature age structure 
but that means that there's not nearly as much hunting opportunity. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just math when you look at the number of bucks on on the landscape. You can't do both statewide, and and so people that show up at commission meetings are often talking about wanting more mature bucks. People on forums and social media often want more mature bucks. But when you do statistically valid human dimensions research and and ask your randomly selected hunting population in states throughout the West, and this has been done year after year, state after state, a vast majority of hunters just want an opportunity to get out with family and friends, get some venison in the freezer and, and enjoy the hunt. Um, and then it's really a minority that, that are looking for mature bucks. So much so that they would sit out several years in order to do that. And I know people that would happily sit out three years to get a, a shot at a unit that had a lot of mature bucks. Are these alternate, alternative managed units? Is this is there a long history of this in Arizona, or is this a more recent development? No, I would say a long history because we were doing it twenty years ago when I was a regional biologist. Yeah, they've they've been around for a long time. Um, and there's some mule deer. There's whitetail units in every region. Well, uh, Kelly can speak to that. Um, oh man, I can list them if that's helpful. Yeah, <laughs> God's got all the data. <laughs> she, does, she, she does for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It um, yeah. yeah, those alternative management units. I mean, it's it's about providing a diverse, diverse hunter opportunity, diverse seasons. Um, that's it. It's the same kind of thing of offering different weapon types. You know, you've got our hunting public that's interested in different things. We all have different reasons on, you know, why we get out and hunt. And so our hunt guidelines, we we try to do a really good job of creating those types of seasons and opportunities that speak to the different types of hunting that people are interested in. Um, and so, yeah, we've got We've got a handful of alternative management mule deer units and white-tailed deer units and elk units. And um, those speak to exactly what Jim covered, the older age class deer. Um, but looping it back in with the statement that you made when you first asked the question, Mark, um, we, so we as managers can manage for older age class animals, um, but we can't manage for the size of those animals, right? So there's so many other things that feed into um, how, how large an animal grows, the habitat, the, the food availability drought plays a big role. And so, um, it's really important. Another piece of data that we collect from those alternative management units is we send hunters that receive permits for those units, a letter in the mail with a tooth collection envelope and ask that those hunters submit teeth from their harvested, um, deer or elk. Um, and uh, recently we've started collecting teeth from antelope and we send that to uh, Matson's lab to estimate age on those animals. And so that gives us a really great indicator of the, the age structure of the harvest and is another data point that we can use in our hunt recommendation process to manage specifically for those age classes and those populations. Well, there certainly some other questions and topics we could get into but i uh we've used quite a bit of your time and i thank you for it before we do close is there anything else for either of you that you want to make sure we do mention cover i just want to give you guys an open opportunity as well to speak to the listeners on anything you uh want to communicate bring up encourage that we haven't gotten into oh great question i think jim touched on it 
really well earlier about public input and the role of public input in wildlife management. And I, I would really like to stress um, that as a hunter, you have a voice in this process and there are ways that you can engage um, with the department on, in wildlife management and um, the things that your, your perspective, your input, um, the things that you see in the field, um, those kinds of things play a role and are considered in, um, in our management decisions. You know, the department comes forward with these biological um, information and recommendations and um, the commission considers that and the public input. And so um, I would just encourage folks that when we do have these opportunities to engage, um, please do. Um, it, it's a great opportunity to, to be involved in something that you love. Um, and we all love the outdoors and wildlife. So I think that would be a lasting message I have for folks. Yeah, I, I would extend that too to um, all agencies. Be, good habitat makes big antlers and makes more deer. Um, just being be an advocate for good conservation of, of deer habitat when you're out there. Um, know what agencies managing your, your deer habitat and, and be an active participant in making sure that um, we're doing everything we can to, to improve um, and, and maintain deer habitat. And that in, in large part too means being involved with NGOs and organizations um, like the Mueller Foundation who's doing tons of habitat work, a lot of habitat work and doing great things for mule deer and just just be involved with those groups that are making a positive contribution to mule deer conservation well there you have it guys i hope that you enjoyed it and as you've heard in both of these episodes of the series thus far get involved stay informed and stay involved it really does make a difference if you reach out express your opinions and be active Next week, we have an episode with New Mexico, which, unlike Arizona, does not have a point system, but instead has a true lottery for tags. So tune in, you'll hear more about that, and New Mexico does have some great non-resident hunting opportunities, as well as for residents. We not only talk about tag acquisition in New Mexico, we get into status of herds and species, their exotic animals, and more. So stay tuned for that. To do so, just be sure to hit subscribe or follow in whatever podcast app that you're using so that you receive those future episodes automatically. And while you're in that podcast app, leave a rating or review if you can. It does help us tremendously. And thanks for taking the time to do it. We'll talk to you soon.